0: Thanks for listening to the Jazz Joe House Show podcast. Today on the pod, from a provincial election to a horde of potties at BC ferries, we look at the year ahead in BC politics. Plus, the Bank of Canada hints at interest rate cuts in 2024, and the province overhauls housing legislation. What's this all mean for BC's construction industry? And why were once family-friendly Mickey Mouse and Winnie the Pooh now being portrayed as serial killers? Rick Forchuk joins us to discuss why Disney characters may soon end up in slasher flicks. That's all next. On the Jazz Joe Hall Show podcast. Now, I don't know about you, uh, but during the holiday uh, break, I uh, shut off the news. Uh, it was nice for me, and I'm a news junkie, as you all know, but I thought it was time to jump in a little bit and get a lay of the land in regards to politics, not only in our province, but in our country as well. Joining me now is Richard Zussman, Global BC's legislative reporter. Good afternoon, Richard. Happy New Year, Jazz. Go Happy through. New Year, and it's the real Richard Zussman, not a deep fake, which is good. Yeah, so, yeah, there exactly. go.
1: try my deep fake voice on you and see how it went. All right. Well, there's
0: <laughs> like I've always been told you you know I love international news, but uh, all news is local, and that's what's most important. So let's start at the local level, and nothing more local than BC Ferries. Uh, walk me through this story. I think you're working on this for tonight's news hour as well, in regards to porta potties and BC Ferries.
1: Yeah, so some problems yesterday on the Queen of Cowichan between North Vancouver and Nanaimo. Around 7 o'clock last night, one of the elevators went down, and then a second elevator went down. So all elevator service was stopped on the Queen of Cowichan, which meant for those with accessibility issues, they couldn't get from the car deck. Up to the upper deck. So BC Ferries jumped in pretty quickly here. You have to give them some credit. They got maintenance crews there to look at the elevator, but they also got porta potties delivered at around midnight. So this morning, for those traveling between uh, Nanaimo and North Van and back on the Queen of Cowichan, uh, for those with accessibility issues, so you can't get up and down those stairs, uh, the only option for bathroom was porta potty on that main car deck. Uh, one of the elevators is now fixed and operating so they have solved that problem but it's just a sign of some of the challenges we may continue to see on ferries vessels ceo nicholas jimenez has acknowledged Mm -hmm. that many of the vessels are you know at their best before date or beyond in terms of needing replacement and that leads to all sorts of challenges and often the elevator issues are tied to the fact that there's lots of vibration happening on the vessels as they sail and it causes challenges But it's also the fact that these vessels are getting older and we're going to see more challenges like elevator failures. We have seen some motor and mechanical failures. So there's a big ask from uh, BC ferries to get more vessels on the fleet. It's going to cost a lot of money. They're already spending, Jazz, hundreds of millions of dollars to upgrade and maintain the current vessel. So with growing populations, ridership going up, this continues to be something to watch, obviously, in terms of the mechanical challenges the ferries will have, all the way from, you know, having used porta-potties in some cases for those that can't use stairs... All the way to those cancelled sailings that we've reported on uh, whenever they happen, especially uh, last year around Canada Day. We haven't,
0: I don't think we've hit the moment where people say that's enough, but are we getting close between, uh, you know, at times not having enough staff uh, to run a ferry, mechanical issues? Uh, This is a porta-potty issue here, Uh, I don't want to make too much of it, but I mean, are we reaching a point where, you know, somewhere along the way the public's going
1: to say that's enough? Uh, And it seems to me that we're getting pretty close. Yeah, for so many British Columbians on ferries, we can't say it's enough because they are the mode of transportation that people rely on to get between the island and the mainland, and people need to have that service working. So for those people who are impacted, it's already enough is enough. That you know any delay causes challenges with making important medical appointments, with catching flights on the other side of the water, those types of challenges, the issue, though, is you know who's responsible here. CEO Nicholas Jimenez is new to this job. He, the BC Ferries last year broke records for the number of people they hired, and in a situation like this, Jazz, I believe that it's a changed mentality for Ferries that they are quicker to react to problems. The problem is we are seeing more and more problems occur. So there's going to be a lot of pressure on Nicholas Jimenez over the next year to show the work's being done at Ferries to hire more staff to manage that side of things. But also that preemptive maintenance is happening to ensure that we prevent these types of mechanical issues. And you know, is this it, it impacts a lot of people? You know, millions of sailing, you know, millions of people travel every year on the BC Ferry system. So there, there are a lot of people here that uh, can be impacted, and and that's why you know it matters in terms of how both. Ferries in the province reacts to these issues on board. Uh,
0: let, let's touch on another issue, and that's with the BC United. Kevin Falcon was uh, on colleague uh, Mike Smith's show today talking about a cell phone ban. I actually talked about this when I was in MLA and was doing some work on it. Um, obviously, we have more uh, research now being provided to educators, uh, to elected officials as well. Huge issue in the United States where I think there's like 33 states now suing Um, social media companies, big tech about the impact uh, cell phones and particularly social media are having on kids. Here's Kevin Falcon uh, on the Mike Smith show earlier today talking about banning cell phones in British Columbia.
2: Well, we called uh, almost a year ago now for a banning of cell phones in schools. Um, The reason we did that is because we're hearing increasingly from teachers, but also um, that frankly, there's a huge amount of reports and data pouring in now about the negative impacts uh, that it has on terms of kids, basically shows that kids learn less and perform worse as a result of cell phones.
0: That was Kevin Falcon speaking to Mike Smith uh, earlier today. Uh, now, as a, as a father, and, and you are as well, uh, I'm at the bro stage of parenting. Uh, I'm not dad <laughs> anymore. So <laughs> I a constant fight with the cell phone. Uh, I, I think your kid's a little younger. But I mean, there's some practical realities for cell phones where I think they work really well for kids. But I would agree with Kevin Falcon here. It's a huge issue in regards to educating your kids, in regards to at- attention at schools. And then, of course, the broader issue of social media and its impact it's having on our kids.
1: Yeah, it's important to know that Quebec is putting in place a ban in its classrooms, but the challenge, as you know, Jazz, with any type of legislation is when you put in a ban, enforcing it becomes an issue. Who does this fall on? Does this fall on the district or does it fall on the principal or teacher to teacher? And how do you ensure that uh, parents feel connected to their kids? So many use the cell phone as you know, a communication tool or an emergency tool if they're trying to communicate with their kids? Uh, how do we offset those challenges? Uh, but it's clearly something that BC United has honed in on here. They are hearing concerns from the school system about the disruption of some of the cell phone use. You know, the classroom looks a lot different now, Jazz, than when you and I were in it. Mm-hmm. The use of computers, of touch screens, of cell phones, is all part of learning. And as you develop through, do you start looking at implementing these sort of restrictions in a university classroom where they're relying so heavily on now virtual learning, it becomes harder that way. So at what point do you draw the line At what age do you draw the line here? So this is obviously going to be, as we describe, a talker, one of those things that people will be curious about, about the role that politicians have here, but actually implementing it is going to be a concern. I think everybody agrees that We need to get the use of cell phones, you know, playing Candy Crush or texting a friend or going on social media in the classroom should be out of the classroom. But how do we do that in the most effective way is the big issue here. Is it legislation or is it, as we have in most classrooms now, policies where teachers say to their students, all right, it's learning time now. Put your phone away. Mm -hmm. Just like passing a note like you and I may have done, (laughs) you know, sending a text or going on social media is against the rules in the classroom right now and that may be the best way to do it legislation may be challenging but i think we all gr- all agree that that type of you know activity in the classroom can be hugely disruptive to those learning but also those around you learning as well
0: I'm joined now by jerry mayor judson did you have any issues like that uh, like this when you're in school in regards to cell phones
3: um the, i can tell you i didn't <laughs> <laughs> well, um, I know I had my first smartphone when I was in high school because it wasn't a huge issue. Obviously, we had to hide our phones with buttons to text yeah. when we were little. We had to – when I was in junior high, I know I had one of those slidey ones with a keyboard, so you could you had to like click really quietly under your desk. But – if you got your phone taken away, it wasn't the absolute end of the world because the internet we had access to on our phones was terrible. It was rudimentary stuff. Mm-hmm. Um, but smartphones, I think I got in there a little bit before there was a bunch of regulation or a bunch of extra social media, a bunch of ac- all these extras that yeah. these kids today have. Yeah. So it wasn't a huge, huge issue. It wasn't you know legislation provoking. But now I can kind of see it a little bit.
0: And then you add to that, as I was alluding to with Rich, uh these companies and I fundamentally believe that they've made these social media uh, these social media apps Addictive, oh, 100%. especially for kids. Yeah, exactly, right. So there's something fundamentally wrong with that because that is going to be disruptive. And then you get into just comments kids may make about other kids with snap on Snapchat. Oh my
3: gosh! It, and
0: then I think be educators probably had to deal with something like that in school. So I think there's some legitimacy in the conversation um, and something being brought in. I'm not sure what it is. Maybe it's not an outright ban because there are are a lot of positives, as Rich, as one of the callers said. That there are kids that are new that sometimes use the thing for the cell phone for trans and mm-hmm. As I said, it's mom and dad want to know where your kid is as well sometimes, right? Um, so that's part of the issue. So do give us a call on the bus line, 604 2899 Let's talk about another issue today. I uh, mm-hmm. wasn't expecting to come back today and talk about Pope Francis, but here we are. <laughs> and
3: I thought he was on kind of a good jag because he has <laughs> been vocal in 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 more of a progressive way than any Pope that mm-hmm. I've seen in my lifetime. I come from the Catholic, well, not come from the church per se, but I went to Catholic school for 13 years. So mm-hmm. I was plugged in to what's been going on at the Vatican a little bit and I was rah rah Pope Francis I thought he's pretty progressive especially you know same sex unions can with a lot of caveats and hedges can be blessed Mm -hmm. that's really interesting Um, I guess Transgender people can be baptized that's very interesting and new but he said something today about surrogacy and mm-hmm. we have a, we have a clip about it here let's take it.
4: The Pope wants a global ban on a practice that frankly helps some couples become parents
3: yeah in a major policy address he's called surrogacy despicable International correspondent Giles Gibson is in Rome he tells us what else Pope Francis said about it
5: Pope Francis was giving a speech to diplomats at the Vatican when he launched this stinging attack on the process of surrogacy. He described it as deplorable and a grave violation of the dignity of the woman and the child. And he also called for there to be a push by the international community to prohibit this practice universally. Now just last month we saw Pope Francis being praised by LGBTQ groups within the Catholic Church after the Vatican announced that same-sex couples can now be blessed by priests. But we can expect the exact opposite reaction from those same groups to these comments by the Pope about surrogacy because of course many LGBTQ couples use the process of surrogacy to have children. Uh, This issue has also been making headlines here in Italy over the last several months or so. Now, surrogacy is illegal here in Italy, but the government of uh, the right-wing Prime Minister, Giorgia Maloney, has also been looking to, to toughen up rules around surrogacy. For example, making it illegal for Italian couples to seek surrogacy options abroad and not just here in Italy.
0: Uh, That last little bit, uh, that last comment at the end about uh, seeking surrogacy um, uh, solutions abroad, when I was living in India back in 2008, 2010, I did a whole series on wombs for rent.
3: Wombs for rent. Yes.
0: uh, uh, Westerners would come to India and uh, uh, a surrogate in India would be hired to carry the child. Now, women in India generally are vegetarian. Uh, They don't drink or smoke. They're healthy. Uh, and so it's a massive business. I think there it, it was one estimate close to $2 billion a year. Oh yeah, massive amount of clinics. And they also do IVF, in mit- vitro fertilization. So I get where uh, the, the Pope is talking about it's turning into a business, uh, but it's very controversial comments nevertheless because of the fact that People want to be parents, right?
3: People want to be parents, and there's a million and one different ways to be a parent. And I don't kind of understand, I think, that having it involved in a contract, I think that's kind of okay. But I looked into it. I snooped a little bit. Mm -hmm. And in Canada, um, so it's, yeah, banned outright, obviously, in Italy and uh, in Spain as well. In Canada, it's illegal to pay, offered to pay, or advertised to pay a person to be a surrogate. Surrogacy itself is not banned as long as it's altruistic. So I would wonder yeah, and, how uh, he would feel about altruistic
0: surrogacy. They, well, there's, it's also great. That's the, the way you've described it tells you there's a huge gray market out there, oh, right? Oh,
2: yeah, Absolute, big time. Right?
0: And even in the case of India, I remember it was one case where a couple were uh, uh, had hired somebody. Uh, the woman was pregnant, carrying the child, and the, the couple, I think, divorced. Oh. Uh, Or the mother, I think, may have passed away. Oh, geez. So the dad went to adopt the child, but there's rules against men adopting kids from India.
5: Oh, what? So
0: then the grandmother, or sorry, the mom, or this child's grandmother one day, uh, uh, adopted the child, and that's how they dealt with it. But, uh, you know, it does speak to the fact that we do need to be on outside of a universal ban, like the Pope is asking for, international rules and regulations. I think the Indian government is actually stepping in to deal with this issue so it doesn't turn into a business and it yeah, shouldn't be, even though it has it's for not exploitative probably or anything, the last hopefully. 15 years, right? Jeez. But the broader issue of people wanting to be parents, I'm not sure this is where the Pope, well, he's going to go because of the doctrine and, and what the, the interpretation of all all of what he believes the Catholic faith, the faith is about. And I understand that, but... We've been using IVF for a very long time in this country, and the rules are very stringent in this country mm-hmm. when it comes to IVF. Let's say compared to the U.S. and the Octomom stuff that we heard about. Oh, yeah. But I'm very curious. I mean, do you? I mean, do you see the Catholic Church walking any of this back, or? may take time? Or do you think this is one of those things that are in the sand? And it's going to be like this for a while.
3: Yeah, I don't think they're going to roll that one back, especially given that proximity to countries where it is illegal, right? So it's, mm-hmm. you know, the Vatican, Italy. It's it's illegal in Italy. I don't imagine the Pope will come out or the church will come out and be like, hey, actually, just kidding, especially because Pope Francis is kind of a little bit of a little bit of a hippie, I guess, compared to some of the cardinals he has to answer to, which is an insane thing to say about an 87-year-old man. But really, he has to kind of appeal to the more conservative cardinals, and he has to kind of hedge the things that he says in this Catholic conservatism, whereas maybe he does, maybe he doesn't believe it. However, these babies uh, born via surrogacy, they can be baptized, at least there's that, I guess, there is that stipulation. Yeah. I just think it's interesting. I think the Catholic families, if they want to make a family however they feel the need to make a family, however they want to make a family, yeah, they can make a family. I was
0: in the uh, in the OR room when they are going through the process and all that, wow. and I remember talking to a woman, she was coming from Spain, flew to India. Okay. Okay. And uh, we, I met her and the surrogate mom who was carrying the child at the time. Whoa. Now it was, I think it was last year. The Pope said he compared surrogacy to womb renting, same sort of thing, <sighs> womb for hire, as I called it. He called it a threat to human dignity, What? and he s- referred to surrogacy as exploitation of women in poverty, part of a world in which the poor are victimized by commodity-driven and overly commercialized. Western culture. There's so. a
3: way in which poor women are exploited. There's many ways in which poor women are exploited, and I think that surrogacy might be one. But I think that there are other ones to talk about, and maybe <laughs> surrogacy isn't wholesale despicable.
0: Well, joining me now is Chris Gardner, president of the Independent Contractors and Businesses Association. His organization have uh, just put out a survey looking at uh, BC construction in 2024. He joins us now. Chris, welcome.
2: Uh, welcome, Jazz. Great to be on the show.
0: I hope you're an optimist uh, for 2024. Give me a sense of what your survey uh, is telling you uh, as we head into this new year.
2: Well, the, the top line number that's, that I found very interesting and, and a little surprising is that 87% of construction contractors, mm-hmm. uh, as they look forward to 2024, are, saying, are telling us that it will be as busy or busier than last year. And if you just think about all of the uncertainty that we're seeing Globally, mm-hmm. and then all the challenges domestically. I mean, really, since the COVID 19 global pandemic, mm-hmm. we've sort of rolled from one crisis to another. We had uh, the pandemic, then we had supply chain shocks, then we had inflation, and then we had record interest rates uh, to deal with all of that. Um, But despite that, construction has been robust and resilient. And so there's more optimism in the sector than I would have thought. And that's good news. It means there's opportunities, jobs, uh, and investments still happening.
0: But how much of that do you think is just based on, hey, interest rates are coming down this year, happy days are here again, potentially?
2: Well, you know, contractors are, I think there's a couple of things happening. One is a lot of contractors are are looking at their order books and saying, we're still busy. Okay. And, and we've got, we've got orders and, and projects next year, the year after, and maybe going into 2026. Now, it's not every contractor. You can talk to, there was no doubt that as we went into 2023, uh, interest rates had rocketed up. Mm-hmm. Um, there were developers and builders saying, well, we're not sure we can make these projects are viable anymore. And they started to postpone and delay mm-hmm. uh, projects. And so some contractors were looking at their order books starting to shrink. But generally across the sector, the view is that there's a positive outlook. It remains resilient. And it's about 10% of our economy across the country and in British Columbia. Mm-hmm. So this is an important part of our economy. And in British Columbia, about 250,000 men and women work in construction. Those are... are, are People are supporting families and communities. Um, So we were pleasantly surprised by the number. I thought it was going to be lower, but uh, it's very high. Uh,
0: Now, does this optimism actually speak to uh, wages for, for those in the construction sectors? Are they, is it still moving up in the right direction?
2: Yes. Construction wages, even before the pandemic, construction wages were outpacing inflation. Okay. Uh, you know, at, at, before the pandemic, inflation was running around one and a half, two percent 2%, and construction wage increases were, you know, three, maybe 3.5%. Mm-hmm. Obviously, we've gone into much higher levels of inflation since then. Now, that's coming down, but you still have, you know, a forecast this year of about a 5% increase in construction wages. Um, that's a healthy number, um, and inflation's come down below that. So we're back to that trend where there are tremendous opportunities in construction. Wage growth, real wage growth, can, is, is, happens. It, it's a characteristic of the sector. Um, so that means if you're a young person thinking about career opportunities, there are tremendous opportunities in construction. And the challenge is telling that story. Because I know that, and we've talked about this before, if, yeah. if a young person is in high school looking at making a career decision and says to a counselor, I want to be I want to start my own business, that counselor nine times out of ten is going to say go to university and study business. What they should be saying is go to a trade school, go to a technical school, learn a trade, get some experience and become a contractor. Start your own business. Because when you drive by every construction site and you see those signs hanging outside on the fences, nine times out of ten, those signs are family names partners, individuals who are taking risk, building legacies. There's nothing more exciting than that, and we need to tell that story.
0: So yeah. what's keeping you up at night, though? I mean, it, these are good numbers from your survey. I uh, have it before me, which is great, and people are making more. I think it's 5% increase in salary they're expecting in 2024. Yeah. 6% in 2025, where uh, the average wage uh, before bonuses and benefits, uh, or over time, will reach about $37.51, yeah. which is very healthy. Um, but what keeps you up at night? Because you know, at the end of the day, we have a huge demand and need for housing, but we run into all these bottlenecks. Like, what, what what are the top concerns that that, that your survey told told? What did yeah, it tell you?
2: You know, I, I think the biggest concern that's been there for nearly a decade is the shortage of people, and that eighty percent of contractors saying they just can't find enough workers, and and it's surprising given the record levels of immigration. There's been a lot of talk about immigration, but the reality is, if you look at the number of permanent Im- immigrants that like Canada let in last year, about 450,000, only 2% of them are going into construction. And that is not meeting the skills gap. We do a very poor job. We're failing. It's, we have a dismal track record of looking at our economy, understanding where the skills gaps are, and then going out and recruiting the people with those skills to help us build our economy. And so we're not doing that. And, and that's hurting us. Uh, So that's a big challenge. Um, And the second challenge would be red tape regulation, just getting projects approved, whether that's a road, a bridge, a community center, and housing. And, you know, it's so bad that that Vancouver if you compare the approval time for housing projects in Vancouver and Toronto mm-hmm. and this just came out it was uh, it was a study done by Canadian Mortgage and Housing Corporation it's four times as long in Vancouver and Toronto than in other major centers in um, Canada
0: or North America in
2: in Canada okay um so that tells you you know we've got local governments that aren't approving uh, projects fast enough. We've got local governments layering on fees. Uh, and then we've got a lot of finger pointing w- between you know, the federal government, the province, city hall saying, you're not doing enough, you're downloading this. But at the end of the day, um, if, if, if you take the view that we are in, that, that affordability, the Bank of Canada's Housing Affordability Index, is the worst it's been since 1982. So if we, if we, everyone accepts the fact that we're in the middle of a crisis, but we don't have the three levels of government really working together and sitting down and trying to work with the private sector, as if it was the crisis that it really is, and so that is that is a big part of the problem.
0: Uh, I'm very curious. Uh Without getting to the specifics of the legislation, or you can if you want, but the the, the provincial housing legislation that was introduced, many have called it very far-reaching mm-hmm. uh, and could have a significant impact on housing, a positive impact over the longer term. It's a generational housing uh, legislation, some would argue. But then the rubber hits the road on some of the issues that you you've talked about on uh, regards to labor, in regards to construction, in regards to uh, just costs, in regards to. Of similar things, it's just sewer pipes and getting them in and all those types of things. Your overall thoughts on this housing legislation, when you heard it, what went through your mind? Because you, you have to deal with the nitty gritty of the labor, the, yeah. the cost, all that stuff. Um, is this actually doable beyond just the aspirational nature of the, the document, the legislation? Can we actually deliver on this stuff in your mind?
2: I think where we are is that elected officials at all three levels of government have finally realized that the public is crying out for action and that there are families and young families who are looking who can't get into the housing market. So finally the light goes off. And then now what's happening is this, this rapid fire response. Some of the things may be effective. We'll have to wait and see. But some of the things are actually not going to do make one iota difference. And I'll I'll just point out a few things that are not going to be helpful. One is the federal government saying they're going to come up with common designs for a whole bunch of different housing options and that make them available to builders. So I can tell you right now that the challenge we have in getting projects permitted approved aren't, aren't because, you know, it's taking too long to design the home. Um, that is not, it's not practical. It's not going to work. It's a waste of time and money. Um, so other things could be helpful. So the idea that we're going to uh, try and fast track and, and, um, and, and, you know, in third reading in, in municipalities, mm-hmm. do away with the public hearing process. And I have been to a lot of public hearings uh, to speak on behalf of housing projects, community facilities. And I can tell you that nine times out of 10, and, and, and you know, surveys will show this, everybody accepts density and change and growth, except if it's in their neighborhood. And as soon as it's in their neighborhood, (laughs) then all of a sudden it's traffic, it's noise, it's views, it's character of the neighborhood. And the reality is if you live in a city, cities are dynamic, uh, dynamic places to live. Density is just a natural part of living in a city. If you don't accept density in a city, well, where are you going to have density? Um, So I I think some of those initiatives uh, will be helpful. Uh, I think the flippant response that sometimes you hear elected officials say, well, the private sector isn't meeting uh, uh, the, the demand, so we're just gonna magically, the government's gonna take control and start building housing. Well, that's not gonna work. Um, and that's, that's just reflects a lack of understanding of what's really happening in the marketplace. And what's really happening is, the private sector is hamstrung by the costs, the fees, and the rules and regulations that prevent them from building and, and getting projects approved in a timely fashion.
0: Welcome back to the show. Nearly a century after Mickey Mouse first appeared in the 1928 short film Steamboat Willie, the iconic Disney character entered the public domain on January 1st. This means creators can copy, share, and build upon the original Mickey Mouse featured in the American animated short film now that Disney's copyright has expired. Now, does it end there? Guess what? There are many other childhood characters that are part of the public domain as well. Joining me to talk a little bit about what all this means is Rick Forchuk. He's a TV Week magazine columnist and, of course, a contributor here at CKNW. Rick, welcome.
6: Thank you, Jazz. Good to be here.
0: Yeah, I saw this article uh, in the Washington Post uh, just the other day, and I was taken aback by it. Walk me through uh, what you know about this, that uh, Mickey Mouse, uh, is is Mickey Mouse still owned by Disney, though?
6: Well, Mickey Mouse is owned by Disney. However, uh, the copyright in the United States can only be held for 95 years. So at the end of 95 years, whatever you've got owned uh, becomes part of the public domain. So Mickey Mouse, uh, as you mentioned, uh, becomes part of the public domain, and that means that uh, people, uh, anybody, can use that character for any purposes that they choose. Now, this is the Steamboat Willie character, Mickey Mouse. This is not the Mickey Mouse of the Sorcerer's Apprentice of later iterations. Uh, This is the original Steamboat Willie, and all of the characters that uh, were in that little film, uh, including uh, Minnie Mouse, can now be used for other purposes. So uh, it didn't take long for somebody to say, I know, let's do a horror thriller on this. Mickey's Mouse Trap is a movie that's going to be coming out in the next several months. You can watch the trailer on YouTube, and it has that uh, Steamboat Willie Mickey Mouse as a killer and as a murderous sort of person. And as you mentioned, Jazz, this isn't the only one. Uh, Last year, um, the Christopher Robin characters from Winnie the Pooh all became part of the public domain, and uh, Winnie the Pooh, Blood and Honey, was the first horror movie built around that, where the creatures in the forest and the hundred-acre wood uh, all got together and became serial killers. So, uh, you know, it's the notoriety, I guess, and um, people are going to want to see what this is all about, uh, going to try it out, see what it's like, and I think there's more yet to come for sure, Jazz. So is, is it, is it,
0: do you think it's going to be more of a focus on uh, sort of the, the horror genre, or do you think we'll see other sort of elements within enter- entertainment sort of a focus on Steamboat Willie?
7: Yeah, I think
6: it will eventually be other entertainment elements, but initially, the horror genre is the one that jars one the most. It gets us going, gets our blood going, and saying, "How can they do that?" With I have to see what they've done to Mickey Mouse. I have to see what they've done with Winnie the Pooh. In the Winnie the Pooh one, Blood and Honey, uh, it's really quite uh, dramatic in that uh, the forest animals, um, in a in a problem with food, decide to eat Eeyore, and that's where it all begins. If we be- can become cannibals, so it's. Uh, not my cup of gruel, but for sure uh, there are going to be people that are going to say, we just have to see this jazz.
0: Do you think it it dilutes um, uh, and harms the, the the sort of the aura That Disney has built around its characters. I know one could argue and slough this off, hey, it's just a horror flick. But, you know, if you, you do this over a few years with other horror films with Winnie the Pooh, uh, Mickey Mouse, Minnie Mouse, you throw in, uh, you know, one would argue even uh, video games that could be, uh, you know, with a lot of gore. Uh, I was also reading that you can now get married behind that Steamboat Willie character at a Las Vegas chapel now as well, pay $250 or so. I mean, do you think that this will dilute all the horror? Hard- Work that Disney and other marketers have put into these characters. Well, so- I
6: think it does, and I think it will. Uh, Walt Disney was scrupulous about uh, the way he built his business, and he was so concerned about everything. When when Disneyland opened, the first theme park of this nature, uh, he had a commitment to have it the cleanest place in America, and it is, and it was. Uh, now, when you have a serial killer uh, in Mickey's Mouse Trap, that does kind of taint the overall image. And um, eh, for sure, uh, there'll be people over time that don't remember the original pure Disneyland and Walt Disney. But for a while, it's going to be a challenge, I think, for the organization because it does really relish and protect its characters. And uh, there'll be more of this to come, Jazz.
0: Yeah, I was just reading in Variety that... Uh... Uh, I think it's Stephen LaMorte, who uh, wrote the, or sorry, not wrote, uh, uh, produced the, the movie The Mean One, which is uh, Grinch-inspired. He's set to direct an untitled horror comedy based on Mickey's cart- cartoon character. And once again, it's a sadistic mouse. So, yeah. You know, all the years we've spent uh, thinking about Disney, wanting to go to Disneyland, and I'm sure lots of kids will still go to Disneyland, but things are about to change when it comes to our impressions, of course, of Mickey Mouse and Minnie Mouse and Winnie the Pooh that's for sure uh, of course yesterday and that was of course the Golden Globe Awards in many ways uh, those that win the Golden Globe Awards and it provides a good source uh, for a good sense of the front runners for the Oscars so it's an interesting award show uh, and gives you a sense of where things are headed when it comes to the granddaddy of of, uh, award shows which is of course uh, the Oscars now the Golden Globes yesterday were um, hosted by Joe Coy Uh, and look it's never easy being an MC uh, at these big high profile events I'm already saying that, look, a lot of his jokes uh, uh, fell flat. Take a listen. Slow down. I wrote some of these, and they're the ones you're
1: laughing at. The key moment in Barbie is when she goes from perfect beauty to bad breath, cellulite, and flat feet. Uh, Or what casting directors call character actor.
0: (laughs) 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 Some I wrote, some other people wrote. Robert De Niro's here. I got the gig ten days ago. You want a perfect monologue, yo? Shut up! You got—you're kidding me, right? Oh, that was uh, a bit tough, boy. I tell you that much. Miss, Miss uh, Ricky Gervais—that's for sure. Rick, uh, your thoughts first of all, overall on the show and and how it went.
6: Well, I—I yeah, I thought uh, that the uh, emceeing was disastrous. It was just dreadful. Joe Coy did not do a good job. He didn't do his homework. Uh, He tried to make the excuse that he'd only gotten the gig about 10 days ago. He didn't have time to properly write and properly prepare for it. Uh, But even that which he prepared uh, didn't work. Most of the jokes, as you said, fell flat. Uh, Interesting, though, that um, the ratings were 9.4 million people watching it, which is up 50% from last year. So it's a huge bump up. Now, did we want to see the stars? or did we want to see Joe Coy? I suspect we wanted to see the booze fest that the Golden Globes always are <laughs> yeah. and uh, people having a good time and they, they did all of that. A little bit of sarcasm. Robert Downey Jr. in his little acceptance speech was just exceptional, uh, taking a few shots at all of the right people, including the Golden Globes themselves, uh, using the word, instead of saying journalists, uh, who the Golden Globe people are, the voters, he said journalists, as if to say so-called journalists erstwhile journalists you're not real journalists and that's always been the thing in the background that the golden globe people scattered throughout the world very few from north america are really not the kinds of people that have the background to be able to making these choices but um, all of that said um, it was interesting i liked watching it it was long Uh, it was um, okay Uh, in terms of who won what You can't fault those things. I mean, they are what they are. And uh, are they precursors to the Oscars? Well, it'll be interesting this year because um – in previous years, when you take a, a, an accumulation of all of the people that won Golden Globes and then compare that uh, in the years following to who won the Oscars, it's 50-50. You know, half the time, the person that got the Golden Globe got the Oscar, and the other half, they did not. So it's not a real uh, real uh, predictor of the future. But uh, Oppenheimer, I think that'll be a big Oscar picture, and it was a big picture at the Golden Globes. And uh, Lily Gladstone for Killers of the Flower Moon winning best female actor in a film that's sensational I hope she has a chance at the Oscars as well so overall I I liked it I like award shows anyway I'm a bit of a, a guy that way I've been in that room where they do the Golden Globes and the uh, Beverly Hilton and uh, it's a great place Great uh, great stuff happens there the, the the story, the um, uh, feature itself, the program itself, it was okay. It was just okay. Again, I go back to Joe Coy, that was a disaster, and it's too bad that that happened. Do,
7: yes. you, do you think
0: uh, the award show, and not all of them, but th- these types of shows, Golden Globes being one of them, that inevitably they're on their way out. Uh, yes, their numbers went up by 50%, uh, only because I was just doing a simple check around the office, and yes, lots of millennials here. Uh, I'm not a millennial, I'm older, but e- even my myself, I, you know, got the details the next morning on social media. I was busy watching football. Uh, and do you think somewhere along the way that, that, you know, some of these award shows just are on their way out?
6: Yeah, they've been in decline for a long time. Uh, This bump up for the Golden Globes was largely just curiosity because they've been through so much. Uh, We've missed a couple of years of Golden Globes because uh, the networks refused to air them because of all of the political issues around them. So um, I think that uh, the whole genre has been in decline, Jazz, and I think it'll continue. And you put your finger right on it. It's social media. Anybody can have a look at the highlights uh, after the show. You can, in 25 or 30 minutes, see all the best stuff and all the worst stuff, and you're good to go. You don't have to spend three hours in front of the TV. So yeah, I think they're on the way out.
0: Do you sense uh, the, the the movie business itself, uh, there are better days ahead, or do you think at the end of the day, You know, we will probably see you know good movies, of course, still. We're still going to go to the theaters. But it's going to be a, a, a type of event where we may only go once or twice a year now rather than five or six times a year. And that, that in many ways, then, of course goes downstream in our interests in in the award shows and everything else along
6: the way. Well, it's a good question, and I think the, uh, the movie business in general uh, recognizes that and is really working uh, with such things as the Barbie movie and the Taylor Swift era's tour, uh, really working to get a younger group of people into theaters, people who are kind of non-traditional moviegoers, because that's truly the next generation. So if they can get them hooked when they're in their teens and preteens, there's a good chance they'll stick it out as adults and continue to, to do that. And uh, they have to be careful. Not to alienate all of the older folks, but um, I think that uh, the movies still have a great future. And there are still films that need to be seen on a big screen in a dark room with like-minded people. So I think uh, we're going to be a healthy industry yet for a while, Jazz. Uh,
0: your thoughts on, uh, I'm curious, I don't, I wanna, and I won't hold you to this, but what are the one or two frontrunners for you in regards to movie of the year?
6: Well, I yeah, easy. Oppenheimer is for me, I think, the movie of the year, mm-hmm. and I hope that that holds out. Um, I really would like to see uh, Leo DiCaprio get recognized again, uh, not because um, uh, he needs it, but rather because he really did a good job in that role in in, in uh, his uh, his uh, really uh, outstanding kind of way about him. So I like that a great deal. Uh, Maestro, which was on Netflix only, Uh, and has many Oscar nominations. Bradley Cooper didn't care for the movie all that much, but I really respect the fact that uh, it was in there, and it uh, got itself some Oscar nominations for just a streaming film. Mm -hmm. The Barbie movie, well, I think it may get a couple of technical Oscars, but I don't think it will get anything huge in that way. And in terms of um, uh, actors and actresses, it's a toss-up. You just you just don't know. Uh, Killian Murphy for Oppenheimer. I would hang my hat on that one. So let's say Oppenheimer, Picture of the Year. Killian Murphy Murphy for Best Actor, Jazz Wonderful. As far as I'll go.
0: There you go. Well, I trust your judgment, that's for sure, Rick. Thank you. Thank you. <laughs> The race for the White House officially begins in less than one week. And despite some prolonged jockeying over the election calendar, the long primary season will once again begin in Iowa. Uh, The lead contenders uh, were meeting supporters in Iowa over the weekend. Take a listen.
7: This will be the biggest event in the history of our country. We have to win this, but this will be much bigger than if we did it the more traditional way. And I think we're going to do it. I've never seen spirit like this.
4: Chaos follows him and we can't have a country in disarray and a world on fire and go through four more years of chaos. We won't survive it. You don't defeat Democrat chaos with Republican chaos.
0: That, of course, is uh, former South Carolina Governor Nikki Haley, and prior to that, of course, is former President Donald Trump, who is viewed as the clear front runner, with uh, with former Governor Nikki Haley surging, albeit from uh, further back in the pack. And, of course, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis is throwing everything uh, at the Iowa race. Of course, this is all occurring as the U.S. Supreme Court says it will decide whether former President Donald Trump can be kept off the ballot because of his efforts to overturn the 2020 election loss, uh, which, of course, in certain the court squarely into the 2024 presidential campaign well making sense of all of this of course is reggie cicchini global news washington correspondent reggie thank you for joining us today thank you uh a week today we'll probably be talking again and of course it'll be uh, the day of the iowa caucuses how do things look from your vantage point as we have basically seven more days of, of politicking
8: well, I mean, look, the Iowa caucuses are uh, important and not important for a couple of different reasons. Here, a week out, the importance here is that Donald Trump continues to lead uh, the Republican pack heading into uh, the first votes that will be cast of this um, election season. It's worth pointing out that the the person leading the polls doesn't always win in Iowa. If we go back to 2016, Trump was leading. Ted Cruz won it. If you go back to 2012, uh, Mitt Romney was leading. Rick Santorum won it. But the numbers that Donald Trump is holding heading into this caucus a week from now, uh, you know, he's sitting around 51 percent. The closest person to him, Ron DeSantis, is around 18 percent. The question here is, does this really matter? It it is not really a a swing state. It is not a state that often uh, determines who the Republican nominee is going to be. And the second question is, if Trump doesn't do well for some reason in Iowa, does that impact him somewhere else around the country, like in the upcoming New Hampshire primary? So everyone's eyes are on Iowa. The big question is, what happens after Iowa?
0: We're hearing a lot about uh, the surge uh, from Nikki Haley. Um, If she's able to even pull ahead of Mr. DeSantis um, to second place, um, what does this mean for Mr. DeSantis? Uh, Because he's always viewed as, the one who could take on Trump, the next person who's going to lead the Republican Party to the uh, uh, president's office, uh, and he's been struggling since day
6: one.
8: Sure, uh, he has been. I mean, look, Ron DeSantis, um, Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, has poured millions upon millions of dollars um, into Iowa in advertising, in a campaign staff uh, to be able to go out and, and door knock. He has crisscrossed that state. And in fact, he has spent more time in Iowa than in any other state around the country since his campaign started, probably with the exception um, of, of Florida. Uh, And his numbers are still trailing Donald Trump uh, by an incredible amount. There's a couple of different reasons for that. Is it because he pitched himself as Donald Trump but Trump-lite and some of the Republicans said, well, I mean, if you're going to be Trump-lite, then we don't want you? And if he pitched himself as Trump-lite, did other moderate Republicans say, well, we don't want Trump to begin with? so we don't want you. He really has struggled with momentum despite the the amount of money that he has spent there, but also this 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 kind of run from behind for for Nikki Haley. Yes, she is still trailing in third place compared to Donald Trump. She is just a few points, if not just more than a point behind Ron DeSantis and it shows that there may be some interest here from at least moderates within the party for somebody who is a little bit more moderate who originally ran on Trumpism but is kind of starting to veer away from that. If, if Ron DeSantis loses here, the question is, does his campaign continue? Uh, because he has made almost no ground in New Hampshire. And if he doesn't have Iowa behind him, even if he comes in second to Trump, the question is how far behind Trump does he come in second? If it's too much, this could spell the end.
0: Uh, is, is there a sense of why Donald Trump has such a hold on, on party membership?
8: I mean, it, it's a question that we can go back to, to twenty fifteen. This was this was a presidential candidate long before he was president, who was entering the race with significant numbers of controversies surrounding him. Those controversies stuck with him through his presidency. Ultimately, wound up in his loss that he contested in twenty twenty. But the message that that the system is rigged, the message that he is uh, he is kind of um, uh, a bullseye for for democratic investigations. Um, the people in his base feel that he has been done wrong uh, and they like what he has to say, even though he doesn't really have a lot to show for what he has to say. Um, and, and, and that kind of that that idea of Trumpism still being so strong around this country, regardless of who is the one at the top that's espousing it, um, it really does resonate with a good number of people around the Republican Party. The question to, to ask here, Jazz, is on Election Day, I mean, Trump is going in with 51 percent support There is concern in the Trump party because we don't know if everybody who's supporting him is actually going to go out to caucus. Um, And and there is a bit of fear amongst the Trump insiders within his team that if people don't come out to vote because they say, well, look, I'm going to support him in the general anyways, I don't need to support him in Iowa, a poor performance could impact him down the road along with a series of uh, of, of, of uh, legal challenges. Mm-hmm. Um, but his hold is strong, and his hold continues to be strong.
0: And you mentioning legal challenges. Uh, has there been any talk as to what people think may happen uh, moving forward? Uh, because uh, Mr. Trump um, is already dealing with challenges in Colorado, and I believe in Maine as well, and the Supreme Court of the United States is now probably going to have to step in and at least rule on some of this. Um, is there any worry that uh, this could have an impact on Mr. Trump if if, if, uh, if uh, things continue the way they are, particularly after Colorado uh, said what they said and Maine had said what they had to say in regards to not being able to run?
8: Yeah, I mean, look, not only is it these these questions of can he run on the ballot, I mean, Donald Trump, a week out from this this, this caucus in Iowa, even if you ignore what's happening in Colorado and Maine. On Tuesday, he has a court hearing to find out whether or not he has blanket immunity for, for you know charges for things that happened while he was in office, up to and including January 6th and election subversion. And on this coming Thursday, he'll be in New York City uh, as closing arguments begin in the New York City civil case against uh, Trump and, and his business practices. So, I mean, look, Trump heading into Iowa after having come out of two separate courtrooms for two separate cases, that is I mean, it's weird. It, we, we don't see that in this country, but um, it's not impacting him. It's not impacting his ability to run. It may impact his calendar down the road, mm-hmm. uh, but he's still uh, he's still making money off of this. He is still fundraising off of this. He is still getting the support from his base who says, look at the targets that they are putting on Donald Trump, um, you know, legal circumstances or not. He has learned how to use the system in his best defense, uh, and the numbers, at least in the polls to now, are showing that that he knows what he's doing.
0: A tough question to answer, my final one to you. What do you think Canadians should make from all of this, the conversation with Mr. Trump, whether you work in the auto industry in Ontario, the forest industry here in British Columbia, and many other industries, many other sectors? What should we take from this conversation uh, in the United States over the next 10 months or so?
8: I mean, look, there's a lot that can be put into what could happen uh, over the next 10 months. I mean, look, it's one week to Iowa. uh, Tomorrow is 10 months to the election. And then Wednesday is the day after the election. And we don't know what's going to happen. If it's a a Joe Biden victory, if the Democrats continue to be in the White House, we'll continue to see Canada and U.S. roll their relationship along as they have been for the last X number of years. If this winds up being a Trump presidency, um, you know, do we wind up in situations where trade uh, becomes a bargaining chip? for for Donald Trump again. I mean, look at the trade matters that that came up uh, during NAFTA negotiations. Look at the trade issues that came up between the United States and China that really still haven't been figured out, uh, despite the fact that Trump has been out of office uh, for so many years. You know, I think it's too early to speculate, you know, whether it's going to be some kind of doom and gloom scenario uh, the day after the election, regardless of who has won it. But what happens in the United States can have a spillover effect to other countries, around the world who still sometimes look at the US as this beacon of light for how to move forward with democracy. So whether it's simply bilateral relations or, or trade or how you know, election and election integrity is carried forward, um, what happens in the United States matters. Uh, and for people who say, well, look, you know, we don't live in the US, you know, we'll just focus on what's happening in Ottawa. Uh, this is a close relationship. It's the longest undefended border in the world and the two countries rely on each other. So whoever is in the White House, Um, can have a significant impact in what happens in Canada.
0: Reggie, as always, thanks for your time. Appreciate it. When it comes to policies tackling the challenges of artificial intelligence and deepfakes uh, and their potential on-political campaign, lawmakers uh, in the U.S. are still staring at a blank screen. Just three states in the U.S. enacted laws related to those rapidly growing policy areas in 2023, even as the size, scale, and potential threats that AI and deepfakes can pose uh, come into clearer view throughout this year. Now, take a listen to deepfakes of President Barack Obama, and present, uh, President Joe Biden, take a listen.
1: We're entering an era in which our enemies can make it look like anyone is saying anything at any point in time, even if they would never say those things.
6: Our great national anthem, Baby Shark, do 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 do, do Baby Shark, do 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 do, do Baby Shark.
0: Now, of course, uh, the uh, last clip there was uh, somebody having fun with uh, Joe Biden's voice. Uh, in fact, if you look at the video, looks very much like the president and the former president as well. And those uh, particular deepfakes are many years old now, probably seven, to eight years old. In the case of President Obama, you could imagine how accurate they are becoming uh, in 2024. We're joining us now to talk a little bit about deepfakes and democracy is Jesse Miller, social media expert and founder of Mediated Reality. Jesse- Thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me, Jazz. Uh How concerned are you uh, about deepfakes uh, and elections?
7: Well, it's, it's not high on my priority list when it comes to everyday conversation, but it is something that we should be really kind of diving into when we discuss misinformation and democracy. And I, I think we've had enough conversations about misinformation and its existence on social media. But when we saw Canadian news disappear from social media, the conversation about where Canadians were getting their news information, how they were sourcing it, there is now this brand new chasm that you could fill the social media void with, with a number of um, AI-generated, deep fakes, misinformation posts that there was no really congruent um, you know, comparison to. And so we're going to see the rise of the conversation this year. We're going to see the effects after the american election and then we have to kind of see where it fits into the canadian conversation as we move forward
0: do you think we need to go into as far as legislation on this as i said three states have have brought in some sort of laws and enacted laws that speak to this challenge Uh, most haven't as of yet but do you think we need to be heading in that direction in canada
7: we, we definitely do when it comes to misinformation, especially information that is purposely planted to skew elections. And I think what we see when it comes to conversations with individuals is, yeah, we all have our, our, our slate when it comes to the political uh, silo that we might look for our validations from, and we look for our, our conversations in our communities. But I would rather be in an uncomfortable space looking at all of the sides than I would be in an affirmed space and only subscribing to misinformation. So if we saw legislation, especially in Canada, at a federal level that's introduced to make sure that content that is being produced and shared has factual information in it and has to be held accountable to the individuals who are creating it that would only give us a little bit more of an edge compared to the united states where each state would have to put in some form of legislation and even then the voters themselves don't necessarily care if it's misinformation as long as it affirms what they're looking for
0: hmm. uh, in in the case of of deep fakes here in canada uh, do you think a disclaimer would be enough or is it a case of an outright ban? Like you could, you know, some would say, look, I don't care if it's fake. It may just re- reinforce uh, what my views are and maybe that's all I asked for. That's all I want and I'm okay with that. Is it a case of every one of these, let's say, comment from our premier. And if it's a deep fake, at least there'd be a disclaimer that's saying this is a deep fake. Is that all that will be required in your mind? Or do you think it's a question of just banning it and, and there'd be heavy penalties for those who do get involved in this type of work?
7: Well, I think there's two levels there, Jazz. One, it's important to recognize that we see already kind of clarification on social media posts that indicate that information is in fact um, you know, misinformation or infactual. But we also see people who just don't care. They, they say, oh, no, this is part of the bigger scheme. And so we do definitely do have a huge gap when it comes to media literacy and individuals understanding that digital content that lands in front of them may actually have no valid source at all. So uh, legally in the United States, I mean, we see the laws in place, but they're toothless. I mean, it's not illegal to lie in a political ad. So disclaimers would be good if individuals are looking To find information that is, in fact, factual and and backed up by sourcing, they have to have value in those sourcing as well and say, who is this information coming from and do I value it?
0: Mm -hmm. Uh, This election, as we head into a 2024 provincial election, a U.S. election, uh, and probably a few months after in 2025, a federal election, you compare that to four years ago, even or even eight years ago, probably four years ago might be the best way to do this. Uh, Do you think we're in a better place today or a worse place today when it comes to information, social media, online media, uh, and accuracy today? Do you worry more for Uh, democracies and accuracy in regards to information today than compared to four years ago. Are we at a better place or a worse place in your mind?
7: I think we're in a worse place when it comes to the content itself. If we look at, let's say, the, uh, the Donald Trump video where he was uh, caught on the hot mic before he became president, the only thing he could do at that point was really acknowledge that it existed. Um, he couldn't say that was a deep fake. And now, there's so much content and there's so much pub- uh, published, published content that he's participated in that he could say, oh, I never said that. that that's, a, that's a deep fake. And to be fair for him, uh, a, known, a known liar, it's going to work in his favor. What we are really concerned about moving forward is whether or not you have good politicians who have worked in their communities, done things to really kind of raise uh, awareness around issues, and all of a sudden the deep fake really puts them in a spot where voters go, well, I can't trust them because of that thing I saw online. So the disclaimers are going to help, but realistically here, we are seeing a number of individuals who are going to news sources through websites, and where we see that content regulated on social media, it is significantly better that individuals are choosing to go to news sources, as opposed to just seeing it on Facebook. Jesse, as always, thanks for your time. Thanks, Jazz. as always.
0: Last year, we learned that lacrosse would return to the Olympic Games in 2028 after a century-long break. While the sport is returning to the world stage before then, the Canadian women are set to compete in the first-ever women's world box lacrosse championships. This past weekend, history was made in Langley as female lacrosse players from across Western Canada participated in the first tryout for Canada's first-ever female national Box lacrosse team joining me now to discuss this weekend's events is Tammy Rayner. She's the general manager of the women's national team. Tammy, thank you for joining us today.
4: Thanks so much for having me. So, tell me,
0: how important was this weekend, and what transpired in in, uh, in Langley?
4: This weekend uh, was pivotal in terms of we've made history. Um, This is the first time ever that women's box lacrosse is going to be part of a world championship. Uh, So Langley, B.C. hosted the first ever tryouts for female athletes to have the opportunity to represent Canada.
0: Hmm. Uh, I'm curious, why has it taken this long?
4: That is is a great question. Uh, Women in sport have been hitting the international stage uh, for some years now with the field lacrosse discipline, um, and we have been fighting for a very long time for there to be inclusion and recognition for women's box lacrosse, uh, so we are finally here.
0: Um, in regards to the sport of lacrosse, I'm just looking back. I understand that we we'd had uh, women's teams uh, even here in British Columbia in the 1930s, I believe. Uh, so this has always been a sport that's been part of the the cultural fabric of Canada and of British Columbia. Um, it, speak to me a little bit about where the sport, not just fell off, perhaps may not be the right word, but certainly where the challenges lay, where we're once again, where you and your your colleagues are once again helping this sport rise.
4: Yeah, certainly all the way back into the, you know, some of the women's teams in the 70s. And I go to the 70s because that's when some of my coaches um, first played and I first knew about uh, box lacrosse. And so they've been fighting for, as I mentioned, just a really long time to have this sort of grow. Um, and they've done an excellent job laying the foundation and growing the game and getting more females involved in box lacrosse. And, um, you know, they used to go just a little bit from town to town, sort of uh, having competition and, and games against one another. And now it's grown um, across the country. And certainly in many of our, our, even our smaller provinces, have have great numbers coming forward to, uh, like I said, have the opportunity to represent uh, Canada. So it has taken a really long time and there have been, Remarkable group of many women, uh, including especially Michelle Boyer from BC herself, Mm -hmm. um, who has done is very pivotal in terms of of hitting the international stage uh, with world lacrosse and and having this be recognized as a world event. Uh,
0: In your mind, uh, moving forward, um, you know, you've you've reached a certain level. We're talking about a very historic event uh, that occurred yesterday in Langley. Um, What are the next set of challenges that you see? Because you know the sport very well, there's the on the ground realities of just picking your players and training them and, and providing them uh, the capacity to grow uh, and to build, but there's also the corporate side, there's a the sponsorship side. Uh, if you were to look into your crystal ball over the next two to five years, what are some of the challenges and hurdles that you see uh, to grow the sport, especially with women's lacrosse in this country?
4: I think at the grassroots level, this sport is very reasonable in terms of cost to play. Mm-hmm. Uh, it doesn't, you know, there's, there's very little equipment that is required Um there is some, obviously, in box lacrosse, uh, little to no equipment involved in field lacrosse, as well as the sixes discipline. It's keeping females in sport, and I and I've said before that um, I have to give you know, pay tribute to the coaches that uh, do an excellent job with long-term term athlete development and keeping players involved. And there's so many opportunities for young athletes to be part of any of the disciplines of lacrosse and to continue playing through high school, and then even opportunities to go to an NCAA school or stay within their own provinces to play lacrosse at the university level. And uh, we even this weekend had an individual trying out as a 61-year-old goalie. So I think seeing, for young women to see that the longevity of this sport in terms of, you know, it's not over when you're 25. We're a sport that offers opportunities to play in master's leagues that are you know, sort of after perhaps you retire from a national team level, you can play in master's leagues until your body basically tells you that it's no longer going to play. Um, it, in terms of some, some of the obstacles will definitely be the financial piece of um, you're just gaining, gaining more opportunity for travel uh, with teams. Uh, right now our athletes um, at, at tryout stages, they do pay out of pocket to come to the tryouts. And then as soon as they've been named to a smaller group, uh, then that's funded by our national governing body, which is Lacrosse Canada. Uh, but it, being able to participate in, in many of the events that are coming out does obviously cost money, and so it is going to be, you know, gaining sponsorship and recognition to help for all of our athletes to stay involved.
0: Uh, in your mind, as, as an executive, as somebody who's also, uh, you know, in charge of the women's national team. Uh, is there are there sort of examples or perhaps lessons from uh, professional women's hockey, which has just launched in uh, in Canada? You have the WNBA as well. You've seen interesting work uh, and and growth, and still women fighting for their right rightful place. You see that in women's soccer that we in the last year and two. You see that in women's soccer in the United States as well. Uh, are there lessons to be learned f- uh, for yourself? Uh, as someone who drives this sport uh, from other sports, uh, in regards to lessons learned moving forward,
4: absolutely. I think learning from um, learning from and working together with uh, women in other sports so that we can continue to forge ahead. and it's it is about recognition and sponsorship and um, just in terms of having the financial means to be able to have more women stay involved in the sport. And the recognition that we are receiving, you know in various media ways is certainly helping and now is the opportunity we're seeing so many more women's teams at the forefront of of news articles and opportunities for you know radio conversations as well as tv conversations so whatever we can do to continue to forge ahead and have uh women as as the face of, of sport is phenomenal
0: so the tryouts this weekend langley uh the first uh, how many more will there be across the country
4: so we had uh, earlier, uh, a week ago, we had tryouts in Ontario that h- hosted uh, 98 athletes.
6: Mm-hmm.
3: This
4: past weekend, there were over 100 in Langley, B.C. From these two tryouts, there will be uh, 46, approximately 46 athletes that will be named mm-hmm. to come to uh, a mini tournament that is, is scheduled to take place uh, in Ontario, the first weekend in June, uh, that mini tournament will consist of Ireland, uh, Haudenosaunee, as well as Canada. We'll have two teams placed in, a red and white, sort of at that point. And then a final selection camp in early August. And from that, we'll be, we will have a roster of 23 named athletes that will then represent Canada at the box championships that are taking place in Utica, New York. Hmm. Uh, uh, and that's in September.
0: It's in September. Okay. Uh, I just want uh, to just go back to one of the comments that you made about the entry point to play lacrosse. So if you're a parent, I'm just curious, what's the cost roughly in regards to suiting up your kid for lacrosse?
4: It, well, you know, in terms of stick, I mean, here's the, here's the great thing about the sport of lacrosse is that we find it's just this big, wonderful family, and there's always an opportunity for organizations to sort of have a buy and swap or, you know, equipment that gets donated because we're just so passionate About having women join the sport, Um, that in box lacrosse, you you know, your sticks are cost anywhere between $100 and $200, and and even more than that. And then equipment can cost around $100 to play box lacrosse, or or slightly more. But again, there's so many um, avenues through social media that you can uh, purchase used equipment just to come out and give it a shot. Um, Also, many organizations offer learn to play, which is free. Mm-hmm. Um, so they'll have a, learn to play, play opportunities to come out and give it a try. And, and then, you know, it, it, I think it's a quick sell. Once you give this game a shot, you never really want to step away from it.
0: So, so uh, cheaper than hockey is <laughs> where I was getting it, to. Is it is.
4: Significantly, <laughs> significantly cheaper than hockey. Our uh, you know, seasons A season could, could cost, uh, you know, anywhere between $500 to $1,000. And then if you needed new equipment on top of that, it might be a couple hundred more than that but it's significantly less than the price of hockey. All right,
0: there you go. Well, congratulations to you uh, and and the sport uh, for uh, a very historic tryout in Langley, and all the best to you moving forward into 2024. Thanks so much, Tammy.
4: Thank you so much. Greatly appreciate your time.